Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Daylight savings time at the moment next time around will be standard Eastern Standard Time. This morning, Daylight Savings Time. Cade Massey here hosting with the whole crew, Shane Jensen to my right, Audie Weiner straight away, and Eric Bradlow to my left. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. We are coming to you from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios, looking out onto Locust Walk on a wet, gray, dark October morning. We're at the end of October. This is Halloween Eve, and it is Game 7 of the World Series. You guys can jump in here and tell us what you think about it baseball or any other sport on your mind we have a few things to talk about you can give us a shout 1-844-942-7866 give us an email businessradio at siriusxm.com or hit us up on twitter at wmoneyball is our handle at wmoneyball great way to reach out ask questions give us observations complain whatever you got we're here for you guys we have a regular show in that we have guests at the bottom of this hour and the top of the next hour we got a little Football, got some college football and pro football. How's that? And uh, we have a few things to talk about. We had this thing. We had this thing. This this this. What 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 did what did Matty D call it the last Sunday? The sports equinox. We had all four North American sports. We had, if you want to add MLS soccer, those those semis. It's not an American. Those sport. semi those semis <laughs> were going on. If you want to add Tiger Wood, tying Byron Nelson. Sorry, Sam, Sam Snead. Tying Sam, Sam Snead for the most. Tour victories ever. All these things were happening over the weekend. It's actually an extraordinary time. I'm curious of all these things, of all these things, what has most caught your eye? Baseball, come on. It's got it. It's the very end of the World Series. Super exciting. How did you consume the game last night, Audie? Well, I started the evening in a bar in Washington, D.C. You lush. Ooh, at really? 5 o'clock. Really? And they had on the screens all the warm-ups, and everybody was watching. <laughs> this is how crazy they are in D.C. now about, about their nationals. That's great. And, of course, Houston is, is also excited. I don't know about the rest of the country, but the ratings, right. most of the country is probably going on. It's been on. a weird World Series <laughs> well, in the yeah. sense that it's, it, I mean, it, it's close, but not... Game to, like yeah, each game is not game. close. Each game the is series close. is well, close, yeah, but yeah, each game has been kind of a blowout. So or, I mean, yeah, here's some interesting, you know, yeah. stats that they have. First of all, let's might as well start with the Shane Jensen rule for now. Yeah. So this is the 40th game seven that's about to happen t- tonight. Take a guess what the home team's record is in the 39 other games. <laughs> 20 and 19. Yeah, it's 19 and 20, actually. <laughs> yeah. It's 19 yeah. and 20. Yeah. The home team actually has a losing record, but it's 19 and 20. Well, the home team has not been doing very well this World Series. Not well, So once. this is the first time ever. This is another, was an interesting stat. Already? In any major sport, any major sport that has seven-game series, which there's a lot of them, there's never been a series where the home team has lost every game in the series. Well, this could seven. be a first. Is it actually no? But, no, I'm saying that's yeah. a lot when you think about how many series oh, sure. have yeah. gone to yeah. Game yeah. Seven. It's you know, even if we were just pure empiricists, there's been hundreds of them probably right. in all the major sports, and it's never happened. Yeah. Well, yeah. baseball has a weak home field advantage among all the sports. Right. Well, compared to basketball, I, I'd have to look it up whether hockey actually has Hockey's a better also record. weak, but, yeah, but I, would, uh, I, I think say. baseball's a little bit uh, weaker. We, baseball's 52.5% wow. the last 20-year average of the home team. So the surprising bit here is that it has happened before. So interestingly enough, because yeah. a good a, a portion of the home field exa- advantage is due to refereeing advantaging the home, home team, and yesterday right. there was an unbelievable... Incident 
with Trey Turner running down the line. And Can we spend eight seconds on this and move on? Well, the interesting, I'm, just, I'm glad it just didn't matter. It didn't end. matter in the end, but what's interesting is what is the impact of this? So for those of you who didn't know, there was a, a, a bad call about interference, and the manager was thrown out. What will that do to the, the umpire today? Yeah. Will that will he be now inclined to favor the Nationals subconsciously? I would be. I, I think that would matter more had the game gone to the Astros last. Of course, it'd be over if the game had gone to the Astros. But there's no making up needed, essentially, right? right? right. I mean, they they had a home run that inning that 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 kind of got on my head. Next, even further. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah so. I think the other interesting thing we see about the World Series, and you know, how many pitchers are we going to keep saying this for? You know, forever we've been saying about uh, Clayton Kershaw's performance in the postseason. Yep. Last year, as you know, David Price finally got the monkey off his back. And now we've got Justin Verlander. And so here are the stats, just to let you know. He's pitched uh, 20, see, 11, 25 postseason games. He has an 8-1 and record in the ALDS, a 6-4 and record in the ALCS, and an 0-6 and record in the World Series. Hmm. Now... There's lots of theories one could try to construct. Overall... Coin tossing is a good well, theory. <laughs> well, so let's think about that It'd for a second. It'd be hard to disprove overall, that theory. Well, overall, he's 14 and 11. By yeah. the way, not historically different than his career win-loss percentage. One, another theory you could argue, here's a good one, a reasonable one, it's called fatigue. So it could be, given how many innings he's thrown... By the way, he's, he threw 4,000... I think it's 4,000 pitches already this season, which like breaks some record. It's some extraordinary number of pitchers that, pitches that Verlander has already thrown this year. You could argue the guy gets fatigued going from Series 1 to Series 2 to Series 3. Another argument could be and the players get and, better, and, 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 the, mm. the teams get better. And he's more prone to do to this fatigue than other players because of the number of pitches he's Because of the number we don't of pitches, see this with a lot and, of other pitchers. Right, going and because also of his style of pitching. He's a pure power pitcher. The guy throws probably, I don't know that this is true, he might throw more 95-plus mile-an-hour pitches than other pitchers. That's another possibility. It could also be that he's going longer in those games. All I'm commenting it is, yeah. and it could be, well, a good chunk you of it think, could be. So let me just, just say, well, again, it's back to one of those stats. He's the only pitcher in postseason history that has started seven World Series games and won and zero never, and never won. Well, you know, truth mm, is, wow. is that my own, th- I don't want to argue against my own theories of pitching, and my own theory of pitching is that pitchers are volatile. And that and that it's the position in certainly in baseball and maybe in all sports where the game to game variance is larger than in, in other among the pitchers and in others the game you are you can genuinely be a different pitcher in certain games than in others. I love this observation. We, you brought it up in the last couple of sh- once once in the last couple of shows, and it, it's just a general theme that yeah. that we miss. I think it's almost like where stats are going. We spend so much time differentiating players. Really trying to understand the best from the worst, and when we can't understand, we spend very little time understanding variance within player. That's right. And, and yeah. moreover, we 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 as humans tend to compress that variance and think of people in these very simple, reduced terms. And in fact, there's a lot of volatility. Now, there's there. two actually two issues here, and one is. Um, the issue of the player varying, and the other is of the measurement instrument being inaccurate. So we, I was looking right. at quarterback ratings, and quarterback ratings season to season are very uncorrelated, so shockingly so. You'd think that you take the... the what is qu- the correlation? Uh, it's like 0. 0.4, 0. 0.3. It's yeah, really weak. That's, that's lower it's, than... It's not But is great. that across no, all quarterbacks QBR. or, uh, or no, starters? The, or? It's the ones who had, who had uh, two seasons worth of back-to-back 
Um, okay. So it's, it, let's not but pretend this is a, in two seasons. Sapirical? Yes. No, they, well, they appeared, some, they had a certain minimum. Yeah, minimum number. Minimum number. I would hope so, yeah. yeah. What's, nice, what's nice, at least, about uh, Verlander's performance mm -hmm. is it's consistently bad. In other words, it's not one of those things where win-loss is deceiving. In this case, I'm his looking at it peripherals here. are bad, too. Yeah, so his, yeah. his uh, whip is 30% worse. He goes from a 1 to a 1.4. His walks per nine innings gets worse. His uh, whip gets worse. His home runs per nine gets worse. His strikeout rate is worse. So his BABIP is worse. Ba oh, well, batting average and balls in play is... is uh, I'm just, tell I'm, I'm just that's telling the luck you factor. that in that's some generally sense, thought of as the he's luck consistently worse yeah. across yeah. the board but, in yeah. every stat. But let me get back to the... So think about, as you bring up with pitching, we can really measure in detail what pitchers are doing in an accurate Absolutely. way. You can't do that so easily with quarterbacks. So, so right. my point about the quarterback rating is that I think it's not the quarterbacks that are changing so much. Is that the what we're measuring about them are not as, as deeply car car or, or right. measuring how yeah. good they are. Mm -hmm. Well, that's we're going to have Adam Harstad at, at the bottom at the top of the next hour, mm -hmm. and he's got some things to say about exactly that. And the, what's what, the, one of the general things he's talking about there is that we tend to ascribe performance to quarterbacks that's actually a function of the broader team. Right now, the, now to connect it to what you're saying, I might have expected the persistence of team stats to be higher than the persistence of individual stats. Just, I would guess it would. Yeah, so, but QBR is an individual stat. But what but what Harstad is going to say yeah. is that QBR is more team based than we might think it is. The QB the QB stats in general, we make them to be this individual thing, and actually they're highly interdependent, largely team things. Well, how different are the teams one year from the next? And that's really the the heart. That's a pretty uncorrelated proposition right there. At the extremes, you get you get there's some obviously some signal bad, bad and good, but in the middle, whoa. And now we're seeing that. Do you mean in terms of like the winning records of teams yeah, in the yeah, regular winning, season? Yeah, or even the peripherals. But in, in football, I don't even know what peripherals are. I'm not a team level that carry over from one year to the other. I mean, like, at, at the highest level, we know that the, this, the records persist at about 33%. And so there's yeah. a lot of regression to the mean. And yeah. I do hear, you do hear things like offenses are more consistent than defenses mm -hmm. season mm -hmm. to season mm -hmm. or, or game to game, mm -hmm. right, as well. So there must be some consistency there. Or right. By the way, I don't know if this is putting a bow on the World Series. Anyone want to guess what the betting are? are for tonight's game, given know, all this, the data I've I wanna, told you. I want to hear your thoughts on this. I really All right, do. so I, I know it because I'm staring at it right now. It's just all right, so let me, let me talk Remember, it through. All right, let, me, it through. let me just lay it out. Go around. <laughs> I would, you know, it's game seven. We know, at least if we were just pure empiricists, we know 19 and 20 coin flipping. If we want to take baseball as a whole, 52.5%. Uh, the home team hasn't won any game. They have Scherzer on the mound for the Nationals. They have Granke on the mound for the uh, Astros. Scherzer's obviously had a much better season than Granke has had. What do you think the betting line is? Well, I think the the thoughts would be it's home. Uh, the Astros are the better team, which I still believe, but Scherzer is the better pitcher, and that usually is the bigger deciding and factor. And Scherzer okay? Well, he claims. I mean, that's a, that's claims a, to that's be. a mystical. I, I would say it's about minus one ten on both sides. Minus one ten. Okay. Any other guesses? I, I know what it is. Here. Okay. It's like fifty fifty. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, minus one thirty seven. Oh, really? So hmm. the Astros are, are yeah. Astros are, are favored. So why? Yeah. I think it it just it must be well 
people have this belief that Game 7, that's what you fight for all season is to get Game 7 at home. They may have a false belief about baseball versus other sports. Second, they probably are. You're using Adi's priors or the priors. Mm. 107 wins is much greater than 91 wins. The Astros are the better team. Mm-hmm. Although we have no evidence of so, that from but, this seven-game series. Yes. Moreover, you've been telling me, Adi, since the beginning of the playoffs that the Nats have played since, whatever, June or something at the same of, level hey, as the Dodgers as the, and, and the, the Astros. Astros. There are two facts about the the Nashville. And this is, of course, we we know that to to be wary of these things because they're cherry-picked. You can always find a a, a, A a point in the... the, But but there are two facts about the Nationals. First of all, through the end of May, their record was horrible, but their peripherals are very good. Okay, and that's that's uh, important. They're what sixteen and thirty one at one point in the season, yes, right? And that's when that's when they call it. So basically, they they go for it and they found the the bottom, the bottom point and they yeah. start from there. And that's just totally unfair, right? Well, so if you did the same thing with the Astros and the Na- and the Nationals. You see this all yeah, the time. Yeah. With, yeah, <laughs> yeah, of with, you know, it's like yeah. I mean, I mean, when somebody's on a fifty one game hitting streak, <laughs> right, you right, know right. that they did not get a hit. And that I, the second I, got, game. I know you guys know this. George yeah. Casella has a great article. One of my favorite statistical articles about this. Like when they report, like the guys hitting in seven straight games. Well, you know for a fact he didn't hit in eight straight. And as a matter of yeah. fact, you can actually put an entire region on what he must have done even in previous games before that based on what they're telling you. Because they're going to tell yeah. you the maximum of statistic course. they can, yeah. which puts a distribution on other things they could have told you. It's just a fun paper. Yeah. Right, right. So it, the bottom line here is that... Uh, they were uh, as good as the Nationals. I mean, the, the Dodgers and the Astros at a, for the majority of the season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would, I would, and their peripherals were well, very good how before. About the, just take that number. If they were sixteen and thirty-one, and they ended up with ninety-one wins, they were. I know it. You just cherry pick from the bottom. They were seventy-five and yep. forty mm-hmm. in their last. You know, it's almost two thirds. That's, yeah. that's pretty strong. Uh, that's pretty strong. So, so game seven. This is one of the. You know, this is. This even is what if you're not about. that big a baseball fan, you you dial these what, things what's up. What's Cage Theorem? I don't Show have... me a game seven. I don't care the sport, and I need to yeah, have it on my absolutely, phone. Absolutely, and you tell me to go watch. That's right. It happened. I mean, what I, the, <laughs> the this, theorem. no, the theorem is the theorem is playoff hockey. Oh, playoff hockey, especially overtime playoff hockey, especially game seven playoff overtime hockey. And then you just like it's, you drop uh, yeah, anything you're nothing, doing to, yeah. to get like there. <laughs> but, but baseball has its own thing. I mean, those moments in the high leverage situations, as pitcher versus batter. Those moments when the crowd's up, I mean, that's it's really tough to beat. That is a unique thing in sports. Look, people, you asked me, I think we've asked before on the show, our most memorable moment in sports. I hate to say it, to me, it's still the 2001 Yankees-Diamondbacks World Series, Game 7. You, you know, Yankees go onto the field up 3-2, to two, Rivera's pitching. Look, no, I'm just telling you, I understand it didn't yeah. go the way I wanted it to go, but that's still, of all the sporting events I've ever watched, to me, it's given how much I invested in that team. Okay, hold on, you just said 2001 Yankees-Diamondbacks, Game 7, Yanks are up 3-2, I assume this is ninth inning? That's correct. Mm-hmm. Ninth inning, so they're, they're and Rivera on Rivera's the mound. on the mound. And the Yankees are the three-time defending <laughs> champions, remember. Yeah. Can we just can we dial up the video? Is that possible? Oh God! And it wasn't even it was <laughs> there were none, no good hits. Okay, so what happens? No good hits. What happens? Bloop. There was a bloop hit. There was a throwing error. There was all kinds of stuff that went on during. Nobody that. hit it hard. Nobody is, hit it is hard. Is it the bottom of the inning or are they home? No. Or bottom. Are they away? The bottom home Arizona? team. Diamondbacks so I, are the home team. Oh wow. Okay. Oh, and basically, wow. Johnson and Schilling were the only pitchers they had, and they just kept using them. <laughs> yeah, they used them all series. It was great. Yeah, my memory great. is just Johnson on the mound. I think my vague uh, memory of no, but Schilling. That was oh, Schilling. I mean, Schilling actually won. I think Schilling. the World Series MVP that year. He, did. he was unbelievable. But Johnson was just so intimidating. Well, at the I mean, height. he. I mean, just he such had. A unique... a, I mean, his his style of pitching and everything was very unique. All right, fellas, this is Wharton Moneyball. You guys can jump in here, give us a shout one eight four four Wharton one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Everybody's here. If you have any question for anybody, you. 
you can also hit us up on Twitter at W Moneyball. Uh, we talk about maximums and records and all that stuff. There was an interesting max record hit, at least tied this weekend. So obviously, I've been you know I've always been a huge Tiger Woods fan. Uh, he won his 82nd tournament uh, that ties Sam Snead for the most of all time. Uh, that record's held since 1965, so it's a 54 year old record. Sam Snead was actually 52 years old when he won his last pro tournament. Wow! So that gives Tiger yeah. some optimism, as you guys know. Tiger was in fact this is Tiger's first tournament in nine weeks because he had a little knee operation or knee surgery. How old is Tiger now? Tiger's 43. But here's the other, another interesting fact. So Tiger's career winning percentage of tournaments is the highest all time. It took Sam Seed like 450 tournaments. It's like one in four, isn't it? About It's a little less now, okay. but it's 22%. Yeah, two in nine, 22% of the tournaments. In the last 14 months since Tiger came back from his back surgery, his winning percentage is 22%. So the other thing that's interesting wow. to me is that he's played, I mean, I understand it's not a big sample, but he's played 14 tournaments since he came back from his, you know, four-year, three-year hiatus, and he's won three of them. So the thing it says to me is people are, and his scoring average, by the way, is exactly the same as his career scoring average. So What is his scoring average? His scoring mind. average is like 69. Oh, it's the, the lowest average of all time. Of yeah. He's got the lowest scoring average of all time. He's got the highest win percentage. If we're talking about maximums, too, I, I think everybody knows this. Uh, Tiger Woods, 25 times in his career, has gone into the last round leading by three strokes or more. He's won all 25 of those tournaments. Overall... Going into the last round leading, he's won 46 can, of 48 can you benchmark tournaments. Me? When, a, when, a, when a, a golfer is up by three strokes going into the last round, what fraction of time do they win? I think it's about 70%. Yeah. yeah. Let me give you this Let me give this observation. We tweeted this. We retweeted this thread. It's from my, my oh, here we go. colleague, co-author, and, and good friend George Wu over at the University of Chicago. Ran some analyses on the likelihood of winning as a function of how far behind the leader a person is. And it's just absolutely extraordinary what Tiger Woods does versus everybody else in the field. So can somebody walk through this graph? Eric, you've been talking about this. Well, so just for viewers, on the x-axis, the x-axis, we have strokes ahead of the second or behind the leaders. You might either be in the lead, which means you're on the positive side of zero, or you may be behind the lead, which means you're on the negative side of zero. Then you've got win percentage on the y-axis. So it's exactly the question that Adi's been asking about. Yep. And we can see... This is 18 years worth of data. Okay, so this is a lot. It's Tiger versus everybody else. Yeah, and so what this is showing, for example, leading by three strokes. Now, here's the one thing. It shows here, there's one data point which I can't really make sense of. It says after four, four, Tiger's up four. Four, he's lost. And that's not actually true. Maybe a small sample. No, no, no. no. They, I'm just saying it's all time. He's never lost leading yeah, by three yeah, but, strokes. Yeah, but maybe ah, uh, now there's a maybe. Now we're starting to pr- three or to more this strokes. Minute. Is it three or more? Three or, or three more. exactly? No, three or more. Okay, he's never lost because three exactly. He's never lost, and one exactly. He's never lost, but he's lost once at two, and he's lost once. Okay, at least the stat <laughs> I had heard is that he had never lost. But let me just say to Adi's point, the overall win percentage is about it's what about I said. Th- it's probably seventy percent. A three uh, or more. Nope. I'm just averaging over. And, and the gap. The gap is about the gap is pretty much most dramatic actually. She had zero. So if he goes into the final mm-hmm. round tied, tied he wins eighty percent of the yeah, time, exactly. and other people win twenty five percent of the time. Yeah. That's the stunning thing. That's the yeah. absolute stunning thing. It's just how much different his performance is versus every the average of everybody else. Okay, yeah. this is a beautiful example of regression to the mean right here. When Tiger Woods goes in tied, he's almost always the better player. If you think about it, why? 
Because think of the field. The, the, the person he's tied with is the person among the field who managed to tie him. Highly likely that person had an incredibly good first three rounds. Okay. And then Tiger Woods is there just doing what Tiger Woods it's does. A, it's, a, it's a very good point. But, of course, these stats are not just about outperforming the person he's tied with. It's outperforming everybody in the field. Right. Right. But you're, you're right. So, but, you know, this but, is the question the here. Same, the, same, the, per, the person who was tied, what fraction of the time do the people tied uh, win, win, the, win the tournament? Yeah. And the answer is 20% of the time. Right. Yes. So there must be a bunch of people being tied, typically, I guess. But yeah, Tiger wins it's, 80%. it's often multi, multi-way yeah. ties, yeah. right? It yeah, could yeah. be multi-way ties. 80% of the time he wins your when, point, he's, when he's zero. I think your point is, when Tiger is playing like Tiger Woods, which being tied oh. or being the lead would indicate he is, he's just he is actually the better player. Someone else yeah. is performing maybe above their They're mean, mean performance, to get there. That's and right. therefore... He's going to win. All, no, no one would say that large a fraction. Yeah, so you, yeah. you pick any. The, the thing is, you pick any other great player and you throw him on here, and it will oh, look, also be higher. It will be higher exactly. than the field, yes. but it will be lower than, than Tiger. Tiger. So in some way, yeah. in some ways, the more compelling comparison would be Tiger versus pick some pick his best contemporary over this eighteen year period of time. Of course, that's a point. There's not anybody that's even close. His best contemporary would probably be Phil Mickelson. Yeah, was, okay, put Mickelson, Phil, put Phil on this, and he's also going to look better than the field. Is Audie's point, which yeah. is great. Yes, and that, and then we'd see. I bet it's half. Half as good as mm-hmm. Tiger's. No yeah. more, no more. So, to what extent is Tiger back? And does I mean, how impressed are we that this wasn't you know this wasn't the Byron Nelson and this wasn't like a non-major but big tournament. This wasn't Nicholas's tournament in Ohio or whatever. This wasn't the you know the TPC. This was a tournament in Japan. The competition might not have been that good. It still counts in a way, but oh, do we discount it well, at all? A couple things. Uh, first of all, there was no cut. Not that that necessarily affected things, but he, everyone played all four rounds. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were other great players there. Rory McIlroy was there. Uh, guy that won the U.S. Open, Gary Woodland, was there. I'm saying there were probably yeah. half the number to two-thirds the number of top players there. So one would argue this wasn't the strongest field but it was certainly a strong field. And I, I think it's more impressive to look just kind of at the consistency of his winning percentage, you know, across the, the however many tournaments he's played since he came back. 14. 14, you said, and he's won, and he's won three. three. It's the yeah. same. And the other thing that was interesting about this is another thing. that And those, I watched, those 14 in general, other than this one, I guess, in Japan, are kind of probably biased to the stronger Well, he won the World right? Golf Championship, yeah. which is the year-end tournament. He won the term- it's called the Masters. Yeah, no, he, right. He <laughs> that won that good. tournament, and now he's won this one. The other thing that was interesting about this tournament, just for our listeners, this has also never happened. You can cherry pick a bottom stat, which Adi just talked about. He actually bogeyed the first three holes of this tournament. So when he started, he went bogey, bogey, bogey. By the way, he shot 64 in the round. He ended <laughs> up with amazing. nine more birdies in the last 15 holes of that. But no one, I, I know they cherry pick stats. No one had ever bogeyed the first three holes of a tournament and actually won the tournament before. Hmm. Hmm. So, my uh, overarching question is how does the tiger that we've seen since he's returned compare to the tiger of his heyday? What would you say? What well, fraction of the tiger well, we got? Well, Oh, 60%. Oh, wow. No, and has yeah. his game fundamentally changed? Like, I haven't been paying close enough attention. Like, you know, I, if, if somebody would just to say, now there's this old man playing golf. Right. Well, you know, <laughs> like, I, I would assume he's driving. He's your age. Driving he's 40 40 your age. Yeah, he's no, I mean, are. yeah, that's right. Old man. I mean, by, 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 his, by the standards of his field. You're the prime. Well, look, here's, yeah. no, here's the big thing. I mean, I'm in the prime for academics. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> by, by the way, who's the, the boy wonder coach in the NBA is? Brad Stevens, age forty three. Yeah, reference class matters a lot. Or, or yeah, or, or this guy Tom Brady, forty two. Yeah. There we go. Anyway. No, I was going to say here. We, look, Rodney's like forty eight or something. 
the closer. Fernando Rodriguez. Fernando Rodriguez. No, 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 he's that's that's like true. 900 years old. He doesn't know. How old is Cece? Uh, 42, I think. Or, no, 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 40. 40. 40. 39 or 40. 40. Yeah, he's, okay. he's done. He wrapped it up. But again, here's the thing. He doesn't outdrive the players anymore. As a matter no. of fact, I watched a lot of the tournaments. And he used he to. was playing with... Yeah. Oh, yeah. by far. By he, like was 10, playing with, he was playing with uh, Gary Woodland and I forget who the other player was that he was playing with. He was typically not the farthest person off the tee. The thing that Tiger Woods still does that's better than anybody, it's called the iron play. Matter of fact, last year he led the tour in, you know, when you look at approach shots, distance from the pin. And at the end of the day, you hit the ball closer to the pin, you're going to score better than other people. Tiger Woods, mm. I think to something, like, something like 17 of the 20 years he's been on tour, he was the cl- his average distance from the pin on approach shots. So let me shots ask you is a question. Of everybody in, was, his, that, was his putting ever in the kind of high, like, top of the field? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. All so right. not only was Tiger Woods the best iron player. Because I was going to say, I mean, if you're the best, best iron player, your putting can could I, be average, can and I ask you're still going to have an edge, right? I ask a, I wanna, I wanna, I'm curious about golf, because this is these are the kind of questions we ask in baseball. So you take a guy who's been around over 20 years. There, if, if we compared Tiger's driving today compared to, I mean, 20 years ago, compared to what the best drivers are today, yeah. that gap might have closed because... I mean, in other words, correct. There's, it's not so much Tiger's gotten so much worse, but the field well, probably yeah, got I, a lot I think better. This, I was Great just, point. I was thinking along the same lines, yeah. but I got there a different from a different direction because I was wondering about age-adjusted driving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then you can't age-adjust with all the technology change without also also controlling for technology. But you could, you should be able to do this. I would love to see how driving distances have evolved over time, and then mm-hmm. norm that out and give me a. Age-adjusted technology even, and... Um, even, but just an age curve for driving distance. Right. I mean, this is something, if if you're a golfer and you get into your 40s or older, you notice that this driving distance is a function of age. Mm-hmm. And But I, don't, I have no... <laughs> I, I, we know it in the amateur players. I don't know what it looks like among professional golfers. And you guys are talking about Woods' distance. Well, what, what, how is he doing versus how he used to do? Adjusted for technology. And... You know, I don't know. This is just a kind of a broadly. It's a very specific. You're talking about peripheral yep. golf. Let's measure this peripheral and see. Brody's got these data, or Jake Nicholas has these data. We'd love to see. Them. Yeah, here's the thing. I I don't know adjusted for technology. I know that when Tiger was, let's call it in his heyday, there were maybe three golfers on tour that hit over 300 yards average driving distance, and now the number's probably 30 or 40 golfers at least. Right. So it's yeah. parallels what we see in baseball with. Yeah, the, the ninety-five mile an hour pitch is is somewhat rare. It used to be, we remember Rivera was throwing yeah. 20, 95, 96, and we thought he was uh, unbelievably fast. That's practically the mean. Do we see an do we see an uh, age curve for throwing speed? Oh yeah, oh absolutely, like, absolutely. But you see, uh, like Nolan, I think of Nolan Ryan. No, he, he defied no, that's, that's not. He's that's not, not he's normal. Not he's not forty-five. Normal. <laughs> You're thinking of the forty-five-year-old Nolan even Ryan, though, even, even the forty-year-old. Yeah, no, he's 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 not human. Okay, yeah, <laughs> guys. Before before we get to Rick, I want to hear any thoughts you have on the NBA because we're not going to cover it for a little while anyway. So this is early. The Sixers season. are three and zero. We're delighted here in Philly. Come on, They're maybe one of the only undefeated teams left. Right. Well, there's there's two undefeated teams. I was just looking at this. There's two undefeated teams still in the West. But we're actually to me, it's shocking that only three games have been played in the Eastern conference and the Sixers are the only undefeated team actually is, left in the Eastern odd. Conference. Yeah, that is which odd. is a little bit odd. In the West we have the Spurs and the Timberwolves that are the undefeated <laughs> teams in the West, which is kind of interesting. What's the first thing you think of when you think of Timberwolves? I had it the most Justin right. Timberlake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's be the first thing. <laughs> no, 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 no. 
You know, you know, you know what this word associated with? Word associated with? going to go, dude. You, you know, can't predict I, that. I, I think of I think I, of the famous quote by the now old, I can't the think former, of anything but Justin Timberlake. <laughs> I think of, spoke at my son's graduation. I think of something by the uh, former owner of the Timberwolves when they signed when they were negotiating with Kevin Garnett. Yeah, and his quote was. I'll give him the team, and I'll take that contract. No, that was his, her yeah. poll's exact quote. He's like, I'm offering the guy more, basically, than the team is worth. And right. So let me it's ask funny you. you. It's funny you say that, because he was the first person I thought of uh-huh. when I thought of the Timberwolves, which is ridiculous, because that was 20 years ago. Well, yeah. they also, let's give some credit. They have a great, pl- they have two interesting players. They have a player that's under, you know, the big cat, Carl Anthony Towns, who's extraordinarily underappreciated. Well, he One he of the, was here, right? Didn't these guys it, draft him? No. I'm a, no, I don't think so. Okay. I think he was drafted by the Timberwolves. But either okay. way, he's one of those 20, few 2010 guys in the NBA. Yeah. They also have a former number one pick, Andrew Wiggins, who a lot of he's disappointed a lot of people. In other words, he's been much less, I mean, not as bad as Markel Fultz, but one of those guys that's really underperformed. But they've got a decent team. Yeah. By, by the way, you said 2010 guy. It reminds me of a headline I saw on the way in today. Anthony Davis was a 40-20 guy last night, and he only played three quarters. I know, 31 so minutes amazing. of play, 40 points and 20 rebounds last night for the I Lakers. mean, I, who was it? I think last week you were talking about like how LeBron might not be the best player on that team now. You know, I think it was you that brought that up. I think here's... I think Are you this talking is, about LeBron's decline? Yeah, well, here's... Well, and, and Anthony, Anthony Davis, Davis just... It, it, it's more yeah. speaking to how good Anthony Davis is than okay. really a slight I, yes, against but here's LeBron. The, this, is the, this is the thing that the Lakers have to hope for. It's very simple. They just need LeBron to be the best player on the court for the last five minutes of each game. So the hope is that Anthony Davis can be the best player on the court for the other 43 minutes, and therefore LeBron does not have to expend the energy. Yeah, because LeBron, here you notice this, we've, you've t- talked about this, on the defensive side of the ball, he's not the same player. No, that's but right. But if you ask LeBron, I'm hoping, because I'm a fan, yeah. if, you're ho- if you're asking LeBron to be the great LeBron for the last five minutes of the game, I think he can do it. Oh, but if yeah. you ask him to do it for 48 minutes now, he can't do it. So, or at least 48 minutes in a regular season. I mean, I'm, I'm really excited to see. I mean, though I, I'm not really a fan of the Lakers, but I am excited to see playoff LeBron again. So To sort of see whether, sure. again, he has the gas in the tank to do that for maybe like 20 minutes a game. That's throughout a playoff. Right. So let, let's run. now we've had uh, three or four games in basketball. We can do this. Uh, we compare across sports. In baseball, three or four games means nothing. In football, it means a ton. What does it mean in basketball? Well, it means less in football than people make it out to mean. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah yes, pe- indeed. Pe- people <laughs> overreact. You can't. Yeah. You yeah. really don't know, have a sense of what's going on in the NFL until about midseason. And people are bouncing around. They have these hot takes. Everyone's mm-hmm. selling people short. And then you know, then the Eagles go to Buffalo and win by twenty five. Yes, or but whatever. You, it was. You, you you were telling us that Buffalo wasn't good. Uh, they were three and one. And yeah, their record. No, they're, they're they're my one. One. This is my Last, point. This is exactly yeah, yeah, my point. I was yeah. saying they were less good than their record. That's right. Yeah. Which is exactly the point that I'm making. Yeah. So the so and were, what what do you think about the the, the teams? What the, do we learn? Nothing. Do we learn anything I'm, yet? Not nothing, much. Nothing. I think the one okay. team I've learned a little about they they are what I thought they would be, but they're going to adjust. Golden State's not a good team right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've they did win one game, but they beat I forget who they beat. They beat some. They beat maybe the Charlotte Hornets or something. They got blown out by thirty points at home in their home opener. They've lost. They blown blown out by thirty points in their road opener. How much of it is that they're not as good, and how much of it is they're adjusting to not being as good as they used to be? I mean, they have a whole different lineup now, and 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 moreover, it, it has to be painfully obvious to them that. It's a lesser lineup than it used to be. I think what you're seeing is what other teams have faced for a lot of years, which is um, Steph Curry now. There's no more Durant, no Clay Thompson right now. There's no more Iguodala, anything. Steph Curry is going to face 
the best defensive player on every team every night. Yeah. And he's going to be double teamed because no one's worried that Draymond Green or D'Angelo Russell or any of these other guys are going to beat you on a consistent basis. And so that's why when Durant went to the Warriors, it was just... Who has enough great defensive players to cover Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, and Kevin no, Durant? And that was no almost, one does. That now, was almost but every a, team has one good unfair, one. Unfair, but they, they were winning prior to Durant, and part of the reason they were winning prior to Durant is I thought they always impressed me by the depth of their bench and right. by their coaching. And these are two things that hopefully can kind of see, you know, I mean, they're, I mean their bench is not as deep as it used to be as well, but, you know, I mean... I think it's going to be an interesting season to sort of see, like, you know, I mean, see Steve Kerr, like, you know, can can he kind of coach this team at least to average or not? You know, I think it's going that's to be a, a fascinating question. thing That would to be, watch. I think I agree with you. That would yeah. be a great question. Look, that's why, you know, there's been lots of talk. We're going to talk about the NFL, I'm sure, in the rest of the show. I still am hoping for a day, I know you're not necessarily, where either Brady doesn't play for Belichick or Brady retires and Belichick coaches <laughs> no. again. Because well, I, I think I, that's I, that scenario I could I could deal with, that second one. Yeah, well, okay, I would be fine with that, and I think, you know, in some sense, Belichick may have something to prove, and and I think people are starting to talk about that. Yeah. We can talk more about Belichick. We will talk more about Belichick later in the show. For the moment, we need to take a break. Come back and join us after the break. The chance of a lifetime for Luis Gonzalez. 2-2, bottom of the ninth, game seven of the World Series. Bases loaded. Floater, center field. The Diamondbacks are world champions. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow at the moment. We just lost Audie Weiner. Four faculty here, longtime collaborators on Wharton Moneyball. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, you guys can jump in. You can join us. You can be here too. Give us a shout. One eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Give us an email, businessradio at siriusxm dot com, or hit us up on Twitter at wmoneyball is our handle up there at wmoneyball. We are rolling into the second quarter in the show. This is a slot where we bring in guests from the outside world. This morning, we're wel- we're happy to welcome, thrilled to welcome Cam Meller. Into the show, I think this is Cam's first time. Cam is the lead college football analyst for PFF. That's it's kind of a misnomer when we're talking college. It's kind of CFF, but Pro Football Focus has a college division. They're doing great things. Cam, good morning to you, and welcome to the show. Pleasure, and uh, you know, thanks for having me. And it is a we we shed the Pro Football Focus uh, kind of for this college college uh, moniker of ours. You know, we have the college business, so we got rid of the pro. And now we're, you know, hoping PFF just kind of sticks going forward. So, oh, is that it, it works? We're all encompassing. Is that right? Y'all have made some branding changes. That so, so tell us again what you're saying. You're saying you're you're not calling it. It's still PFF, but you don't break it down into the pro part. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just PFF. So we even you know moved the website profootballfocus dot com to just pff dot com. It saves people a couple of keystrokes here and there. So that it's you a know, win-win. aren't there? We have a marketing guy sitting right here. Aren't there big examples in the world of corporations that started out as the, they were acronyms for something, and then finally they're like, "We're not an acronym for anything. This is our name." 
Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. For, well, I'll, I'll think about it while you are <laughs> we'll you're interviewing Cam, but there are lots of brands that have basically done what Pro Football Focus has done. Okay, got it. So, Cam, you're, are you calling in from Cincinnati? I am calling in from Cincinnati. From, Been here for uh, for a few months now, actually. For Why just a few months? Are you new new to these guys? Uh, not new to PFF, new to Cincinnati, new to the offices. I've uh, been in Florida the majority of my life. I lived in Columbus for a few years, but yeah, moved up here this summer uh, to kind of spearhead the rest of our college uh, consumer-facing, forward-facing product and, and still do some of the back-end stuff. But yeah, we're, uh, we're headstrong with this college product of ours going forward, and that was uh, why, we, why we brought me here. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, because you said consumer-facing, which is, which is it feels like a new frontier for PFF generally. I mean, you guys got going first selling kind of scouting data or like chart data to national football teams, national football league teams. And then you get into scout data, and then you expand to college. But you mostly you're selling into industry, essentially. What is the consumer-facing yeah. side of things? Yeah, so it's going to be kind of what we, we have it similar, uh, the, or the goal will be to have it similar to how our NFL product is currently with our premium stats. And then it allows you know users to get a betting edge. Uh, we do have a college green line product, which allows you to look at the betting, the opening betting lines, the money movement, the, you know, and then where our numbers say to go for college but at this point you know it's getting getting our stats in the hands of you know the the general consumer to look and you know nobody does what we do at the nfl side of things and nobody does what we do for college and so that is the you know the goal is to allow you know the casual fan to become smarter the more in-depth fan to become even more you know knowledgeable about their team their program and every country or every school across the country so that's where we're going that's what we're doing a lot of what we're uh you know the the forward-facing stuff is on our college twitter account as well and so getting that in, in a you know, a back-end suite product for some that are interested, you know, that that's the ultimate goal is to, you know, spread awareness and be, you know, kind of the, the first or the, you know, the marquee company in terms of college analytics. Because if, if the NFL is braced analytics, I feel like college football is, is close. And, uh, you know, we definitely want to be, be there and be the name to know. Well, let's hear more about what you're doing for those guys. And, and again, with, with pr- at least for the first few generations of your work, you guys provided charting data, kind of letting people know who's on the field, who's lined up how, and then you provide scouting data. And and the scout data is still something that's very high profile for you guys. You know, your, your PFF is sending around every week, you know, top-rated quarterbacks, and this happens at both the NFL and college level. But you're talking about a kind of a new suite of offerings. What what? What detail are you offering in the in the consumer facing college side of things? It's still to be decided. Uh, it'll be a next year type of thing, and that's where we kind of kicked it off with with unleashing the college betting. Uh, you know, Green Line is our product, it's, so it's college betting. That's what we have now, and then it's it's going to be our premium stats, um, and then you know we'll see what we go from there. Uh, but yeah, still to be determined, still to be decided in terms of how we we bucket it. It could be by conferences it could be by you know you could get your own team or you choose your own team or your own conference or get a multiple set of teams you can look at the advanced data but yeah it's either it's going to be the the snap counts where they line up on the field uh to you know those advanced metrics like how many stops and run defense how many missed tackles and coverage how many deep passing yards how many you know runs off right tackle how many runs off left tackle those types of things will have kind of very similar to what we have for the NFL product is, is the, I think, the ultimate goal. Okay, Cam, uh, when you talk about a betting product, are you t- are you talking? Are you making recommendations? Or are you just providing information for people who are interested in, in in additional detail for their own betting purposes? We have additional detail. There are some we uh, we do written picks where our uh, lead college betting analyst Ben Brown. Uh, does those where he'll tell you where you know what the biggest edges are for the week and he'll do six or seven written picks each week but every game 
that includes two FBS programs. So any of the Power Five or Group of Five or independent teams, they get, uh, you know, we have our betting advice on the money line, the spread, and the over-under, uh, and where our data would lean to kind of give you that advice and then allow you to pick and choose from there. But, yeah, we have, we have six or seven spread pick write-ups uh, like our guys Eric Eager do and George do uh, on the NFL side where they write up two or three picks a week as well. So Ben does, uh, you know, some written picks and gives you those what he's going to be betting this weekend to allow you to, you know, use those also as some background. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Talk about how analytics is advancing in college. It's impressive to me that you guys would be able to extend your offerings from pro to college. And in, in pro, we've got 32 teams. You've got um, – you know, a much smaller set of players to observe and rate every week. With college, you've got 130 Division One teams or FBS teams. Are you are you literally grading players at the same level of detail and frequency that you do in the NFL? This is the first season that we've actually we've almost reached that level of detail. Obviously, it's almost impossible to do it and keep up with it, uh, you know, live like we do for the NFL. But you know, we're we're very close. We've added new new data points and new data tracking processes that mirror what we're doing for the NFL. It's not quite there because we do a little bit more in depth on the, on the quarterback side of things in terms of, you know, where every pass is located once they're targeted. So that, that doesn't quite correlate over to college yet. We'll do those after the season, but yeah, we're pretty close uh, to doing every level or the same level of detail that we do at the NFL for all 130 FBS teams. Mm -hmm. The, the, you talked about there being interest in college. What about among, um, among the teams, so you have all 32 NFL teams, I'm certain. You probably have had most of them for years. What's your penetration with college market? And more generally, what's your sense of the appetite among college teams for these kinds of these this kind of detail? Yeah, I think it's it's growing. I think we started off. We kind of it took a it took a little bit for us to hit the 30 team plateau, uh, but now we're over half. We have 70 FBS schools that are are utilizing uh, you know our data, and we're we're involved with their their back-end products uh, but yeah 70 teams subscribe to what we're what we're providing uh, and I, I expect fully that number to go up uh, you know this offseason once they get out of you know the 2019 season and start looking ahead because I think it's it's really started to grasp and I think when we, we when we hit 30 we basically almost hit 60 because it's the word started to spread about what we're able to do and offer for these programs uh, for them to give them just a you know a, we've heard from so many coaches how much time just our data saves them because they would have to go back and be tasked with on Sunday morning charting where every player lined up on every play and right. you know, we already do that so all these you know saving them time and saving them effort they can then go spend more time on the road recruiting if that's where it really boils down to in college football so i think there's a lot of benefits for what we do and what we offer and i think it's, it's slowly starting to catch fire so to speak and yeah we're at we're in 70 schools right now cam are they following the same kind of adoption curve that the nfl did their first interest is in chart data and then they'll be more interested in more advanced stuff as they come or, or is anybody like jumping over that they, that they're, they've begun to because of what they've seen from the pros they've their first interest is a deeper more sophisticated interest or are they more on the same adoption curve We've had a few that have, that have seen what we've done um, and use it as a recruiting tool, actually. They come in and say they want to use it as a recruiting tool to showcase how well you know, a certain position is doing. But I think it's, it's that same curve okay. where it's, it helps me. You guys do the charting. Help me with that. That's great. Right. And then they realize what else is happening. So we've had a few that have come in besides charting, but I definitely think that that's the, the marquee and the, the, you know, the ground floor level for sure. So we're talking to Cam Meller. Cam is the lead college football analyst for PFF College. We haven't heard his background yet. We want to hear some of that background in a minute, but Cam is from Florida State. He's been with PFF for four years now. Uh, so uh, with this 
I guess the charting is kind of your your marquee product for the college game, but to the extent that you you know you're kind of doing the the grading as well and and selling that to, to teams and whatnot, what are the kind of challenges of the college game for that grading um, endeavor versus the professional one? Like, yeah. like, because I would guess that, like, I mean, you know, I mean, just broad strokes, you know, you've got like a lot of bigger heterogeneity and competition, stuff like that, the college game, whereas the NFL is a little bit more balanced. I would assume that that kind of gives you some kind of re- grading or, or data challenges. Yeah, there's some, there's definite challenges. You know, when you have Southwest Missouri State taking on Oklahoma type of situation, you know, you know, that, and I think that actually is what our grades do very well. It does, they don't take into account the, the level of competition, so to speak, because they're on a per-player, per-play basis. And so it kind of alleviates that a little bit, uh, you know, but the way it works is, you know, a, if you're not going to grade negatively against those players for the most part. So once they do get normalized, I'm sure it, it affects it a little bit in terms of, you know, you're not grading negatively against this poor level of competition, uh, so to speak, or this lesser level of competition, but there is there's definitely some challenges. There's definitely the talent disparity. The is pretty it's a pretty big gap in terms of, you know, every player is basically an all pro at that point at the NFL level. Whereas you know some of these guys are never going to play another game of football in their life after you know four years of college football, and you know they're not trying to. So it's just they're doing it, and the disparity is large. So it, there's there's some caveats. There's some pitfalls. Some some definitely, you know, challenges in terms of that regard because I think the most notably it happens along the offensive and defensive line where, you know, you got to plug and play five guys on the offensive line and you know you're you're not always going to be able to field a team like the Oregon Ducks have this year where all all five guys are likely going to go pro. You know, you, you at best you're usually going to have one, so you'll see some major lapses there, which then you know cause the the downfall of an offense or vice versa the downfall of the defense. So. There, there's some challenges, some gaps, but I think you know our, our grades do a really good job of actually telling who is doing super well and, and where that disparity and that talent gap is. Cam, this is Eric Bradlow. Since we had Eric Eager on a few weeks ago, I might as well ask you the same question that I asked him since we're an analytics show as well. What role do you think that artificial intelligence will eventually have at PFF? You could imagine, you know, you could take a doomsday scenario where it replaces, like, you know, I just have video consumption data and, you know, automatic algorithms can start tracking players, can start grading players, essentially, or you could view it as a supplement to what you're doing. How do you view the changes in technology and algorithms today and how it's going to affect PFF? I think it's the latter. I think there's still going to be, in, in, the, in our sport that we cover, football, yeah, I think there still has to be that level of human. You still have to take a look at it. And, you know, sometimes those numbers could spit out you know, certain teams that don't belong in the top in terms of, you know, uh, a team that grades super well but hasn't played very much. So I think it's, especially in college, there's still going to be a supplemental sort of AI, like you're mentioning. I think, you know, that could take away some of the jobs, so to speak, from, you know, some of the lower level data collection guys that we would have where, you know, you could essentially have it chart where each player lines up that's not necessarily the the most difficult thing in the world to do uh, and so that can be done but i think it's more of the latter i think it definitely would be a supplement in terms of that because you still have to have some sort of subjective eye uh that you know a human can have and then somebody that's been doing this for years and years and years i think so it, it could be the first the, you know the former the, the doomsday scenario where it replaces us all but isn't that uh, i think that's stable at this point because we need you still need that subjective human eye uh, for college football to be able to discern between the level of, of play you know, Cam, I think you guys are creating a real challenge for yourselves and others in collecting these finer and finer data. Because the better we get at measurement and the more detail we collect, the harder the aggregation problem. 
if we're not if we don't have these fine details that you guys are providing, if we're just looking at team stats, the aggregation problem is easy. We're looking at like yards per attempt in a game, which is kind of what we had for a long time. Well, we care about games, and so it's already aggregated for us in some sense. You guys are doing something very different. You're saying on this play, he was you know well blocked or he was well covered or he, the pass was well thrown. Now we've got that for every play. We've got to aggregate up in some way. So the as measurement has gotten better, aggregation has gotten more challenging. And I know that's that's going to fall on people like Eric Eager, but it strikes me as a very big deal, really, especially as you go to trying to provide okay, based on our numbers, this is how good a team is, or based on our numbers, how this is how a team is going to perform against this other team, because that's that's an aggregation. That requires aggregation. Yeah, yeah, I look at it as, you know, what we've had for many years was the standard definition of, of data and stats for football. And, you know, we are the HD, we're that high definition group. And so what you're mentioning, you know, aggregating it there, I think, you know, I'll leave that to the brains that are Eric Eager. I think, you know, he's the, the smartest guy I've ever met in my entire life, and I was actually just talking to him. And, I, you know, sometimes I find it hard to understand what he's saying. He's that smart. <laughs> so I'll leave, it, I'll leave it to him. He's more advanced even than I am uh, to, to do those and handle those, those issues. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll defer to him in that regard. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're definitely it's – a, it's, a, it's a good problem to have, to have this nuanced per-play data. I think one of my favorite things to look at is now becoming kind of synonymous with us at the yards per route run, and it takes, it's even much better because it's a granular play level per player – whenever they're on the field. And so it's, it's a great way to look at it. And then now that's becoming the new benchmark of PFF stats to go forward. So we're, we're getting there to where the general public knows it to you know, kind of understands it as well. So we're, we're getting there. It's, it's a definitely a task and a, uh, you know, an undertaking we're willing to, to go through as well. So Cam, talk to us a little bit about the 2019 college football season. It's been, you know, at a high level, the great thing about it is that it's not quite the chalky thing people thought it was going to be. Everyone was convinced it was Alabama. Just write Alabama Clemson in, and then it doesn't even matter who else is in there. Those two teams are going to do it. And instead, we get this collection of five or six teams, all of which are surprisingly close to each other. And then there's a big drop-off after that, even though there's a contender or two. But beyond that, beyond that kind of high-level story, what have you found interesting in the season? And is there anything you think people are missing based on the way you guys look at the game and what you're seeing among teams and players? Do you think there are stories that are kind of under the radar yet? I think, honestly, it's, it's more of what we've already known from the NFL this season of college football. The quarterback and the passing game has officially you know, become the most important thing in college football, you have to have an efficient quarterback. You have to have an efficient play calling scheme as well for your quarterback. I think there's there's obviously that goes back to the talent gap and the challenges of grading college is that you don't have one of the 32 best quarterbacks in the entire world on your roster. You have one of the top, you know, 162 guys on your roster, maybe even a little bit more than that. And that's you know you have to have a good coach that can that can harness the best of their abilities. And so I think the most underrated story this season has to be the Ohio State Buckeyes. Uh, and, you know, new head coach Ryan Day and him harnessing this ability of Justin Fields at quarterback for them. So I think they've become and, and truly are probably the best team overall from top to bottom. And I think that goes to their ability to get the best out of this transfer quarterback that played 173 snaps, I think, at Georgia last year before coming to Ohio State. Nobody really knew what they were they were getting outside of those. And then, the, you know, his high-profile recruiting page that he had. I, but I think that's probably the underrated story is how well that Ohio State new coaching staff, after you have you know a, a Hall of Fame coach and Urban Meyer leave and step away, you have Ryan Day, this newcomer, 
be able to do what they've done in, in Columbus, I think it's probably it's very, very remarkable. On on Ohio State, it's interesting and telling to me that you're emphasizing Fields, which of course is a big story because everybody's emphasizing Chase Young as one of the you know the most exciting player in football in many ways, and, and on the defensive side, so he needs to be highlighted. You're saying, yeah, I got it, got it, but but quarterback really. Yeah. So well, and I you know I. I not forgetting Chase Young, I had him actually. So I do our Heisman rankings where we kind of take a stab at who we would nominate for the Heisman if we had a vote or where our, our odds would stack up if we were to rank the top 10 guys for the Heisman. So I put Chase Young up there in week three, and it seems like the, the rest of the nation finally caught up this past weekend. So six weeks behind me, but it's okay. I'll see my horn <laughs> a little bit there. But he's honestly, you know, we had we wrote a piece for ESPN, our lead draft analyst, Mike Renner, did, and it compared him to Miles Garrett, Jadavian Yeah, Clowney, right, right. Both the brothers and, and what Chase Young has been able to do so far. He's not only breaking records by our overall grade standpoint, we look at it outside of the number of, of sacks because sacks are very noisy. Right. You, can, you know, you can get a sack out of many, many ways. And so for him to win his pass rushing snaps the way he is and, and at the higher level that he is, it's a record. No one's come close. Neither right. the Bosa brothers have come close. Right. Garrett never came close. So this guy is the best football player in college football. So, Cam, we've only got about a minute. You've, you said you saw Chase Young before anybody else saw Chase Young. Give us another player. Who is people? Who are people not talking about enough that we should be paying attention to here in the last month of the season? It's tough. One player to pick from. I, people are paying too much attention to Joe Burrow. I think out, out in Utah – there's a guy, Jalen Johnson, uh, and then Julian Blackman. They have two guys that are uh, that should be on the Thorpe list for the best defensive back in all of college football. Okay, I, I think those guys at Utah, the Utah Utes, have probably one of the better defenses in the country. And uh, I'll give you one more. Diamador Lenore is a cornerback for Oregon. And if Oregon finishes the rest of the season undefeated after their one loss to Auburn and somehow sneaks into the Pac-12 title game and then wins and gets to the playoff, Diamador Lenore is their corner who is uh, kind of their marquee guy in the back end who is locked down and coverage. That's awesome. And were both those Utes defensive backs as well? Yeah, Jalen Johnson okay. and Julian Blackman, both those guys are defensive backs. That's great. Well, Utah has one of the few high-profile games this weekend. They're playing Washington, relatively high-profile. Wonderful. So so Pac-12 pack, pack uh, defensive backs. That's great. Thank you, Cam. That's that's helpful. All right, that has been Cam Miller. Cam, thank you. You guys can follow Cam, um, PFF underscore Cam, I believe, at PFF underscore Cam. He's the lead college football analyst for PFF College. Thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, Cam. Pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. You bet. As PFF, they do great work on all, all kinds of football analytics, leading the way in a, a number of ways. Cam Miller. That has been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies and faculty colleagues, Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. Audie Weiner was here for the first half hour. He is now teaching because he's a responsible adult here at the Wharton School, teaching the students we are here, and we're here for your phone calls. Give us a shout, one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. 
send us an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We do handle emails. We'll do them in the middle of the show even. If you want to be old school, give us an email. Or you can be new school and hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is our handle there. Happy to hear from you. Happy to take your questions that way. Just off the phone with Cam Miller. We've been on a somewhat of a tour of the guys over there in Cincinnati with PFF. Picked up the college analyst this morning with Cam. First time we've had Cam on the show. Delighted to meet him. In the next half hour, Adam Harstad. Adam is a football writer based out of Chicago. He is very active in the Twitter sphere and in many controversial debates among the football analytics community. He uh, writes probably most often on fantasy football, but the what he learns there applies across the board. He grabbed our attention, and we're going to hear more about this, with a fascinating essay comparing NFL quarterbacks to German taxi drivers. If you don't think that's interesting, you're wrong, and you're about to be proven otherwise. Good morning, Adam. How are you? Good morning. Fantastic. How about yourself? We're doing well, Adam. Where are you calling in from this morning? Uh, Chicago. Yeah. That, that's a great yeah. little town. Are you are you from that area? You moved that area? What how, What's your relationship to Chicago? Uh, we actually just moved out here about uh, six months ago. Spent uh, 10 years in Texas before that. 10 in Florida before that, and then I grew up in Colorado, so we've kind of been all over. Got it. Adam, I'm texting myself. Where, where, what 10 years? Where were you for 10 years in Texas? Uh, just north of Dallas. Uh, Texas. There's, 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 there's Dallas, man. I'm a little short on the Dallas side of things, but, you know. Well, I'm not from Dallas, so you can feel free to <laughs> I can say what I want to. All right. No offense to the Dallas folks. Some good folks there. Some good folks in Dallas. Adam, tell us a little bit about your background. You, you know, because we pay attention to Twitter and because there's a great community of football analytics folks up there, we've run across you. But how is it that you got involved and how is it that you've gained the profile that you've gained in that community? Well, so my uh, statistics background, like the sum total of my statistics background, is uh, I once took an AP statistics course in high school. Uh, and I got a five, so shout out to Mr. Higgins. Um, <laughs> Hold on, a five. We don't out know of five. That out of five. That's a good score. Yeah, five that's out of five. Score, that's the score you can get. Yeah, yeah five. That's, that's, uh, that's the max. All right. So, um, so you're I, saying you're not a statistician. You know, Whatever you've done, it wasn't true. through prowess in statistics. This is true. I think uh, all I really remember from that course, I can, uh, I can run a mean linear regression. Um, but I think mostly what I gained from that course was just the, the data fluency and, and the understanding of, um, you know, how people use statistics, how people misuse statistics. And I think that's really stuck with me. Um, in 2002, a buddy of mine said, hey, I really like this fantasy football thing. You should check it out. And at the time, my relationship with football was that I was generally aware that it existed. You know, I grew up in Denver, so I watched the Broncos Super Bowls. Um, and that was about it. And so I figured, okay. This is you're not you're not blowing us away with your ethos here. Here's no stats, no football. I mean, come on, Matt. Why did you book this guy again? Tell me where did he come from? (laughs) Well, here now we're going to get some names you recognize. So I uh, to to get up to speed, I got a subscription at this new fantasy site called Football Guys, Um, and one of the head analysts there is a guy you might know named uh, Doug Brennan, Mm -hmm. probably better known to your listeners as the founder of Pro Football Reference. Right. Um, Chase Stewart was there. He's uh, the founder of Football Perspective. Um, and so that's really where I started getting exposed to uh, what good football analyst analysis looks like. I mean, I, I sometimes think uh, Drennan started Pro Football Reference just so he'd have a cool data set to run tests on. Seems reasonable. Um, and uh, so I kind of got a good idea of what, you know, like nuanced analysis looks like and, and just 
how hard it is and how many things you can screw up if you're not paying attention and even if you are paying attention because it's hard. Um, and so I wound up falling in love with uh, fantasy football because of the puzzle aspect, and I wound up falling in love with football um, actually because of the story aspect. I mean, I think just the structure of the game lends itself to stories, and I consider myself a storyteller first and foremost. And then I fell in love with numbers because they help crack the puzzle of fantasy football and because it's another tool for telling the story of, of the actual Right, right. Well, listen, the story you told about German taxi drivers was provocative. It's uh, you, you haven't mentioned economics. I don't know where you came across some economics, but this is this would be what I'd call an economics story. And um, we want to hear you walk through your essay there, because in the end, let me just let me just kind of let me make sure people know why we're doing this. This is going to help understand help us understand mysteries like Russell Wilson. And it's going to help us better understand where very important outcomes on the field come from like sacks, in a way that we, we're probably confused about right now. So can you, can you walk us through your essay that starts with German taxi drivers? Yeah, absolutely. So there's this very old, um, relatively speaking, and, and well-known finding in football that sack rate actually mostly belongs to the quarterback. When teams change quarterbacks, their sack rate tends to change dramatically. When quarterbacks change teams, their sack rate tends to come with them. Um, and so I say that, but hold this is already this is already countered this is already counterintuitive because most people think about sack rates as being a function of you know, these great edge rushers right. that you're playing or the or the right. or the tragedy of your offensive line if you're letting a lot of sacks in. Right, you've got five blockers and then four rushers, maybe five rushers depending on the play, um, and to suggest that at least half of the responsibility for sacks belongs to the one guy who is not any of them. It's very counterintuitive, but it's been replicated. There's been a lot of different methodologies. Um, and so, like I said, I don't really have the statistics background. I'm not running the studies, but I, I love a good story. And so for me, this is a puzzle. You know, what's the story of why this is? You know, a good relationship that you can find is, is very uh, compelling, but there needs to be a story. There needs to be something explaining that relationship. A mechanism, um, really. Right. Because it's like the uh, the famous XKCD uh, cartoon about scientists testing jelly beans, and they test 20 flavors of jelly beans, and they find that one correlates with acne at a p value of greater than you know 0.05, uh, which is what you'd expect to happen by chance alone. There's no story there for why that one color would cause acne, so you figure it's probably a spurious correlation. Right. Well, let, let's motivate. Um, let's motivate what comes next with some with some facts that you share in your essay. One, you, you do a wonderful job of citing a bunch of work that's come before you, some going all the way back to, you know, 2000, early 2000s. But so, for example, Monty McNair says that that the sack rate is the quarterback stat that stabilizes quickest of all the different stats we might follow on a quarterback. They get pushed around by noise. Right. So they bounce around. They're not stabilized. You have to watch a guy for a long time until these stats stabilize. The one that stabilizes fastest quarterback sacks. That's unexpected. Uh, then yeah. there's a fellow by the name of Lisk who did some early work and came back to it last year talking about let's just compare how much of the variance in all these quarterback stats the quarterback actually controls. Let's partial out the quarterback's influence. And the, of all the quarterback stats he looked at, the one he controlled the most of, the one most closely associated with the quarterback, was sack rate. So 45%, for example, goes to the quarterback for sack rate. Considered touchdown percentage, passing touchdown percentage, only a third goes to the quarterback. 
So these are the kinds of observations that you start with. And this is this is all I mean, you do a great job of mustering this evidence, which is already a service because it's helping disabuse people of conventional wisdom. That's all this thing all comes from the lines. But that's your starting place. Like, okay, how how can that be? Um, and I'd just like to add, uh, just recently, uh, a couple of days ago, Joe Thomas, nine-time All-Pro offensive tackle, uh, was doing a Reddit Ask Me Anything, and he chimed in, too, and mentioned that, you know, the quarterback uh, largely controls sacks as well. So it's not just the data. You've got the people playing the game who can lend anecdotal experience, but I think just gives even more weight to that data, too. Yep. Um, but so... Originally, it's a puzzle. How does the quarterback control his sack rate? And you can think of something like, well, maybe some quarterbacks are good at feeling the pressure, or maybe some quarterbacks are good at breaking away from tackles, and you can move on. And then this last offseason, I think some more new and interesting data came to light that I think complicates that narrative a little bit. Um, First of all, uh, some smart people over at ESPN and Pro Football Focus were looking at which is more important to a defense, pass rush or coverage? Um, because the theory is the pass rush causes the quarterback to hurry his throw and makes the coverage his job easy. The coverage uh, causes the quarterback to hold the ball longer and makes the pass rush his job easy. So which one of those two is more important? And they find that um, coverage was actually more important, you know? And then another... Yeah, this this caused all kinds of stir because you know people have done yeah. studies for years and oh, it's the line. You got to have the line. Got to control the line of scrimmage. Yes. Although I would like to note that on a typical pass play, there are seven people in coverage and four people rushing the passer. So from a naive standpoint, if you ask me, would I rather have seven people good at their jobs or four people good at their jobs? I don't think it's quite as surprising that maybe coverage plays a bigger role. Right. From a resource allocation standpoint. Right. Right. Um, and then the other big finding was um, about the relative importance of the offensive line. And they find that, you know, offensive line correlates to positive offensive outcomes at a pretty high level. And the question is, well, if the offensive line isn't really preventing sacks because we've established quarterback largely control their own sack rates. I mean, the offensive line obviously plays a role, but um, if the offensive line isn't primarily preventing sacks, how are they producing better offensive outcomes? It's, it's a puzzle. And like I said, I, I consider myself a storyteller. Um, so it's a puzzle I was kind of playing with. And I remembered there was some economics research um, a few years back, a number of years back, about something called risk homeostasis. Um, And risk homeostasis, I think, is not especially controversial. I think we often see it in our own lives. And the idea is that um, for any behavior that's somewhat risky, if there are improvements in safety, those improvements don't all result in a reduction in risk. Because what will happen is people will compensate and they'll start behaving a little bit more risky and uh, offset some of those gains for gains somewhere else. So I had, a, um, I had a professor at the University of Chicago who was famous for a prediction he made in the 70s that when they went to mandatory seatbelts, when the U.S. government went to mandatory seatbelts, that, um, that accidents would actually go up. For, for exactly this reason. And that's yeah. very Chicago economics. And that, that was in early, early in this whole area of risk compensation, offset hypothesis. And the most extreme version is this risk homeostasis, which says no matter what the adjustment, you maintain more or less the same level of risk. You just adjust your behavior because you've got some some threshold tolerance for homeo, for, for the risk you bear. Yeah. Oh, and I, I saw an interesting one recently on um, commutes, and there might be like a commute homeostasis. And if you look at human history, there's been a strong tendency for people to live in a place where they spend about an hour a day commuting. And as transportation technology improves, 
the distance, the absolute distance increases, but it increases such that their commute remains about an hour a day. Hold on, this, is, then, this is entertaining to me. All right, over what period of human history are we talking about their commuting to work? I mean, well, I, how far I mean, back were people commuting to work? Cities have been around for... I mean, thousands of years at this point. I know this is, but it's an entertaining concept. Okay, so that, that's that's a that's a neat that's a neat idea. That's a neat idea. And so, one of the things you're saying, and one of the things I 100 percent agree with, is that we're about to talk about this as it pertains to Russell Wilson and quarterbacks. But it's a pretty general concept that it seems if you your little bit of reflection, where in your life are you demonstrating this kind of homeostasis? Whether it's stress or commute time, or procrastination, whatever it is, you're probably demonstrating some of this, and so it's probably going on with you. But you're saying it's going on with Russell Wilson as well, so let's get there. Okay, so um, Russell Wilson um, has pretty notoriously through his career had some, had some poor offensive lines. He's taken a lot of sacks. Um, and then what's interesting is uh, last year, by a lot of measures, uh, by pro football focus offensive line grades and by ESPN's new metric, their pass block win rate, which measures how frequently offensive linemen can sustain a block for 2.5 seconds. Uh, Russell Wilson was playing with uh, not only the best offensive line of his career, but one of the best offensive lines in the league, which you would think if offensive line means anything, this should result in fewer sacks for Russell Wilson. But actually, we see the opposite. He had the highest sack rate of his entire career. And if you look the two years before that, he had probably the worst offensive lines of his career, again, by pro football focus grade, various other measures. And he also had the two lowest sack percentages of his career, which is exactly the opposite relationship that you would expect right. if offensive line plays any role in preventing sacks. So, so, so again, I, you, Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. So Adam, yeah, Adam, I was going to ask you, one thing I haven't heard you talk about with regards to sack rate is the role of, let's call it, coaching and play calling. For example, I'll take the quarterback, you know, they've said, you know, wow, Tom Brady has a quick release. Wow, Aaron Rodgers has a quick release. Wow, Drew Brees has a quick release. I guarantee you their sack rates will go up if their quarter, if their offensive coordinators call 30-yard out patterns on every single play. So what's the role of coaching and play calling in sack rate? If I know I have a quarterback who does maybe is immobile... I will call different plays, shorter passes, slant plays. We've seen that happen to the greatest quarterback of all time. I have to admit it's Tom Brady. You notice he doesn't throw the ball downfield as much, and that's to protect him and to protect him from sacks. So what's the role in coaching and play calling in, the, in your analysis? Well, I mean, I think that's really the solution to this puzzle is, is that, you know, the, the truism is that offensive, offense acts and defense reacts. And um, the offense basically gets to choose what they do, and the defense has to adapt um, and try to defend what the offense chooses to do. At an NFL level, if we created some absurd incentive and we told the quarterback, you know, if you take a sack, we will murder everyone you ever loved, you know, an NFL quarterback could go a game without taking a sack. Every time he took the ball, he'd take a one-step drop, throw it out to the flat. If it's there, if it's not, throw it away. He could go an entire game without taking a sack, even if he has the worst offensive line and he's facing the best pass rush. Right. Uh, the problem is an offensive one-step drops and something get into the flats is not a very good offense. Right. So that's not going to be very productive. So quarterbacks, offensive coordinators, head coaches, will choose to take on some risk. They'll say, okay, accepting 0% sack risk obviously results in terrible offense. You know, if we take on a little bit more risk, if we're willing to, to risk a sack, if we're willing to take maybe a three-step drop, you know, there's a small chance that we'll get sacked, but also we'll probably produce a better and more productive offense. Um, and so my contention is 
I think different quarterbacks especially, but probably also offensive coordinators, play callers, just have different risk tolerances, you know, uh, in terms of, of what percent risk of attack they're willing to countenance and then how far they're willing to push the envelope until they reach that risk tolerance. Right. So you said this, you answered Eric's question directly here, I think, just in passing there. You said it's the same. What I'm saying about quarterbacks applies for play callers, offensive coordinators. Like They have a certain tolerance for sacks, and they know when they have a better offensive line that they can call deeper routes and deeper drops, and they're more willing to do that. But it's going to depend. They're not all equally willing. So there are probably some offensive coordinators out there like Russell Wilson who have relatively high risk tolerance. They're willing to dial it up when they have a better line. Yeah, uh, you know, Mike Martz um, always ran those uh, protect routes for Kurt Warner, and he kind of got beat up a lot, um, and that comes to mind. But I tend to think that the quarterback's probably the key component here, just because if if it belonged to the offensive coordinator, then when teams changed quarterbacks, the sack rate would probably stay a bit more stable than it does. Right, right. Okay. Um, You know, I think the offensive coordinator can drop whatever he wants on the whiteboard, but once the ball snaps, it's... What's going to happen is what the quarterback decides happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the the end effect is you see things like Tyler Lockett having a big year in 2018 when the Seattle offensive line was especially strong, right? So these guys, right. he had, you report Russell Wilson having a perfect passer rating on attempts to Lockett, and it's not that it's, his sack rate didn't go down behind the best offensive line he played with. His sack rate was the same, but his deep throws went up. And it's this right. wonderful willingness to take risks. Right. And so it's this wonderful observation. This is one of the main reasons we want to have you on to talk to the show, because we talk about analytics all the time. But we in the analytics community almost necessarily go talk about talk about these things in a relatively simple fashion. It's like here's a here's an observed effect. Here is the closest line we can draw from some statistical observation. And sometimes the the best explanations aren't the closest lines. And you're saying better pass blocking doesn't necessarily translate to more sacks or less sacks. It translates to better offense. It's this general thing, and it might happen in this very indirect way. And it's a terrific warning to all of us in the analytics community, not just for football, but in general. It's like we we probably aren't seeing the game as complex as it actually is, and therefore our explanations are probably, almost certainly, too simple. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's what's the line? Um, all model, all models are wrong. Some are useful. Right. Um, and I think it's just the the quest towards models that are slightly less wrong and slightly more useful. Right. We're talking to Adam Harstad. Adam is a football writer based out of Chicago. You can follow him on Twitter, at Adam Harstad. We're, in particular, talking about an essay he wrote a few weeks ago that we have just retweeted. Matt Matt has just got that out there, if you want to, tra- if you want to track it down. It's applying this notion of risk homeostasis to understand what happens with various offenses in the, in the NFL. Yes, Adam, I was just going to ask you, do you think um, as technology improves and, you know, now we have motion tracking, so we know, for example, how open receivers are, so we know who's creating separation. Do you think in the future also, when you're thinking about sack rate, you'll also be saying, wow, a quarterback, it's it's kind of like sacks above replacement, like an average quarterback with these receivers open in this positions could have gotten the ball out. This quarterback did not get the ball out. Therefore, we're going to be able to attribute it more. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I really think once player tracking data, especially once player tracking data becomes widely available to public to play with, um, I think it's really going to change how we understand um, a lot of things about football. I, I like to say, um, so you know that I'm sure if you've been doing football analytics for any amount of time, you've heard the refrain at some point that you can't measure heart, right? You know, games not played on a spreadsheet. 
Um, not just but, football. You hear that on all the sports. Absolutely. And uh, the thing I'm most excited for about the player tracking data is I actually think that argument's the exact opposite. I think if heart and intangibles are a real thing, um, analytics are the best way to find them and to prove them. You know, if, if you're making a claim that, for instance, uh, running the ball a lot wears down defenses, um, with the level of data we have available now, that's, we can't test that directly. Right? But once we have the player tracking data, we can. That, that's something that's directly testable. Or this mm-hmm. idea that Tim Tebow, um, you know, I'm a Broncos fan, so I remember Tebow mania. And one of the hypotheses for how Tebow was doing what he did was that he was inspiring his teammates to play harder. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something that sounds intangible and hand-wavy, but with player tracking data, theoretically, something like that could be testable. And so insofar as I think heart and intangibles are a real thing, and they probably are, i I don't think we can look at the state of football and say that we've solved it. We've discovered everything there is to discover. I'm sure there's a lot of things we haven't discovered yet. I think it's a ter- uh, but- terrific point, and at a high level, it makes perfect intuitive sense in that we often say around here that those kinds of intangibles, we're not saying they don't they don't matter. It's just that if they matter, they're relatively small, especially relative to, to what we can observe. Yeah, and, and I mean, the, the the bucket of what we call intangibles now is actually a mixture of things that are truly intangible and other things that are kind of currently, unta- you, you know, that we could perhaps make tangible in the future. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So uh, talk a little bit about this. You just mentioned running backs. And one of the big conversations these days in the football analytics community is the value of running backs. And you jumped into a, a conversation, a, an online uh, thread with a, uh, you know, luminaries in the football analytics community on this conversation. So where are you on that? The, certainly the conventional wisdom now, at least among in that community, is that running backs just don't matter. They're interchangeable, essentially. And taking that further, that they're overvalued by many teams. So you see teams pay more than what most folks think they, they deserve. So where are you on that conversation? Um. I, I joke that, you know, I think the non-analytics community thinks of me as part of analytics Twitter, and I think analytics Twitter thinks of me as part of the non-analytics community because I kind of – I think a lot of people think I'm giving cover to the analytic Luddites um, who just don't understand the analytics. I tend to think in situations like this that I think the analytics is getting ahead of the data at this point. Um, I, I've read the data. I find it very compelling that running is not very effective, especially – related to passing um but if you look at like salary data in the nfl um you have four highly paid running backs who are making i believe 13 million a year in david johnson Le'Veon bell ezekiel elliott and todd Gurley. um but i think the fifth highest paid running back uh by contract would be Devontae freeman and he's making about five million less a year um you look at the the franchise tag value for running backs and the transition tag value for running backs is one of the lowest in the league. So I think the NFL largely agrees and, and has internalized um, the lesson that running backs are not as important as other positions. Um, and I think that's a lesson. I, Aaron Schatz, the football outsider, somebody asked him what the biggest impact of analytics was, and he said running back salaries. And I think that's a lesson that they've learned um, largely over the last 15 years. And now we're just quibbling over whether those top guys are worth it. You know, it's we're battling on the margins at this point with, with the establishment. You know, it does remind um, me a little bit, though, of the debate within economics on whether things are rational or behavioral. And in some ways it comes down to a question of how, how, how quickly one needs to learn in order to be considered rational. 
So if it took them 15 years to figure this out, you're declaring victory. Many people would say, well, that's evidence that they're too slow, actually. Well, and yeah, it definitely, I think you can criticize how long it took. Um, but I think that's a different criticism than a criticism of the current state. And I'd also respond by saying, um, I think a term like rational is loaded because um, whoever determines what the target is can change the definition of rational. I mean, is rational, is it rational from a win-optimizing standpoint? No, of course it wasn't. I mean, that's why salaries are lower today. Was it rational from a job preservation standpoint? <laughs> right. Maybe. No, you that's, know? yeah, that's, it often comes back to that. That's why we don't, I'm very reluctant to indict uh, general managers, really, because they're often just optimizing their own career right. chances. It's, it's, it's an incentive. It comes back to the owners. It, really, it always it always comes back to the owners yeah. and what incentives they're laying out there. Listen, what do you think? Take us take us forward. Where do you think people are? What do you think? Especially, well, either you want to take on the analytics community, great. If you want to take on the analytics luddites, as you said, great. What do you think? What are you worked up about right now? What do you think people are getting wrong right now? Either either of those communities. Um. I'm for the analytics. I'm kind of along for the ride. Like I said, I like a good story, um, and so I love every new data point because I think it's a chance to puzzle over a story and and try to figure out, you know, what's going on behind the scenes. Um, I think my big kick right now, and it kind of just started out as a joke tweet, and it's kind of taken on a life of its own. Um, But I saw a statistic one time. I forget even what the statistic was, but it was something that seemed really interesting, but to me it was so obviously just selection bias. And so I tweeted, like, you know, pro tip, if you ever see a cool, compelling, interesting, you know, powerful statistic, just assume it's selection bias until further notice. Like, until, until proven otherwise, just assume it's probably selection bias. Interesting. Um, what Do you remember which, so my, which it was that initially caught your eye? No, um, it wasn't. Um, and I know it was by someone in analytics Twitter, so I know it's by someone who, who knows how to do statistics, although, like I said, statistics well, are hard even when you know what you're doing. Selection bias um, is a big challenge, so this is a great thing to put a spotlight on. Is is there a particular yeah. stat out there or conversation out there that's informed by stats that you think are biased by selection? Right. Just an example. Uh, one battle. Yeah, one battle we've been fighting in uh, fantasy football for, I mean, for decades. Like I said, I Doug Drennan um, was one of my influences, and I think he wrote about this back in 2000. Um, it's this idea of running back aging. You know, whether running backs decline at the end because they get old or they decline at the end because they have a lot of mileage, a lot of cumulative career carries. Mm -hmm. Um, And you get a lot of studies that will say that it's workload. But I find when you read into those, um, usually what you'll find is that they fail to properly control for age. So, yes, running backs with 1,800 career carries are more likely to decline than running backs with 1,200 career carries, but they're also a lot older. Right. So that doesn't tell us it's because of the workload. Right. And then the studies I find that do carefully control for age, you know, that look at a cohort of running backs at age 26 and then see what they do going forward, they typically find that previous career carries uh, are a positive indicator for future career carries. The more carries you had before age 26, the more you're likely to have after age 26. Because of selection. Which, exactly. It identifies you know, the like, better players. Right. Right. The takeaway isn't that getting hit by, you know, NFL defensive players with violence on their mind is good for your health and well-being. The takeaway there is 
if you have 1,800 career carries by age 26, you're more likely to be Emmett Smith than you are to be right. Rudy Johnson. It's good. But you, you're the story guy, and it's the, you have to overcome all the stories we have, these big, colorful stories. You know, from my from my youth, it's Earl Campbell, who Bum Phillips just ran oh, into yeah. the ground, you know, and we all saw that happen. How could your stats be true, Adam? We saw that happen. Um, you yeah, know, and I, one and I of the, think from a counterfactual standpoint, the idea that carries are deleterious to a running back's health is probably, you know, trivially true. The problem is we're, we're never going to play football in a counterfactual universe. It's not a question of would you rather have, you know, Frank Gore or some hypothetical Frank Gore who's only had a thousand career carries. The question is would you rather have Frank Gore or, you know, some nobody. Right. Right. You know, the other the other interesting feature in this running back longevity that I'm remembering from a conversation, these guys might remember better, remembering from a conversation here in the last couple of years, it's not that running backs kind of slowly decay later in their career. It's that it's probability a, of injury Yeah, chance. they're just cruising along, and then at some exogenous probability they get hurt. And so it's, it's completely, they're two different populations essentially, and so there's no, the mean kind of doesn't apply. You're just capturing people cruising along at a, at a kind of a plateau or getting hit randomly with injury. This is actually, I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that. This, so I don't do much analysis on my own. Usually I'm just waiting for other people to do the hard work so that I can, you know, step in and it's throw good niche, good niche you got going on, Adam. Um, the one, I think, piece of big analysis I've done is about um, aging in the NFL. And I'm sure you guys have seen the ubiquitous age curve that, you know, players peak at this age and then they decline. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, my hypothesis is that's all ecological fallacy. You know, if you look at career shapes, they're almost never actually curve shapes, you know, individual careers. But when you average the entire population, you know, you get this emergent curve right. that doesn't accurately describe any individual. Right. So That's interesting. Um, I propose that we um, look at player aging as, a, as like a mortality table, you know. Do you survive to this age or do you suddenly and unexpectedly fall off a cliff? Right, um, right. And if you look at, at careers and you say, you know, which – hypothesis better predicts actual outcomes. Um, so, for instance, like a, a, an aging curve model would suggest that in a player's third-to-last season, they should be better than they are in their second-to-last season because they're typically cl- declining near the end of their career. Whereas a mortality table mindset would say, like, you know, it doesn't matter. That we wouldn't necessarily expect any relationship. Right. And if you look, um, I looked at, like, the top 100 uh, players from – 1985 to 2014, and about 50% of them were better in their second to last year than they were in their yeah, third that's to last great. year. That's great. Adam, you need, to, you need to take this up. This is a great argument to, to get out there because it, I can tell you what, you can make it very compelling argument starting now for the next five years. It's not going to make any difference, but there are going to be a few people that pick up on it and are a little smarter as a result. Listen, man, really appreciate your taking the time to be with us. Love the work that you're doing. We wish you the best with all of it. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. It's Adam Harstead. At Adam Harstead is his, is his Twitter handle. Great follow-up there. He's a football writer based out of Chicago. Very active in the football analytics community. Adam Harstead. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Associate producer Dion Simpkins bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour, sitting on the soundboard today. 
sporting not only the patent that 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 his typical orange beats by Dre, but also burn orange shirt. I'm sure that's in honor of the University of Texas Longhorn football team, who's got nothing else going for them this year except for the fact that Dion's wearing burnt orange today in the studio. We're just off the phone with Adam Harstad. Adam is a football writer. Fascinating conversation. That guy can. That guy's doing some good thinking. Yeah, I think it's some really helpful cool. helpful thinking for the analytics community. Anything in particular stand out? About what he talked about. Well, I mean, I, I, I guess the selection bias issue that I mean, I, I think it's it's. I don't think I would take as dramatic of a of a perspective as, as Adam did, where you know almost every single statistic that you see can kind of be explained away by selection bias. But I think a lot of the misleading analyses or or, or kind of you know statistics that we do see are misleading in part because of selection bias. It's a huge issue. Well, I think the it wasn't what caught my eye, but if you're going to talk about that, I think it, it relates also to the stat that Adi talked about in baseball. So we picked the most extreme thing. The Nats were 16 and 31. Yeah. So we picked the most extreme thing to talk about, recognizing, forget, forgetting that extremum happen all the time. And so to me, that's a fascinating thing. The thing we talked about also was risk homeostasis. I loved his comment that, you know, if you have a better offensive line, you're probably going to take more chances. And so it's the same thing you were mentioning about driving. You know, all of a sudden you give people seatbelts, and it it did turn out, by the way, people drove faster, there were more accidents, etc. And so to me, that's a fascinating discussion about how, and I think that does happen in the NFL. That's the job of the coaches and the offensive coordinator. You know your line, you know your receivers. You know how quickly guys can get open. And you're going to call plays accordingly, knowing that you're going to have to trade off quarterback risk against it. And this is it's a big warning for the analytics community that we're telling, essentially, we're telling a lot of partial equilibrium stories. We're not accounting for all the indirect effects and all the adjustments that people make. So if you to really understand the impact of an offensive line, you have to go beyond the obvious stats like sack rates. You have to go to things like... You know, yards per attempt and, and 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 vertical passing. So another conversation from earlier in the show was Tiger Woods, and we talked about driving distance, and we talked about it as a function of age. It, it, it raises this kind of interesting question. He's been in the in, in he's been playing professional golf for twenty years now. What do you think his driving distance has done over that period of time? And it's an interesting question because we have two competing effects. On the one hand, he's gotten older, obviously. And yeah. anybody who plays golf knows that your driving distance goes down as you get older. On the other hand, he's played during an era of great technological advance. So what do you think? You guys may know the answer now, but Tiger Woods' driving distance has actually gone up as wow. he's gone from 23 years old to I would have guessed the opposite. I would have guessed old. his age more than comp- – that, that than the technology off. was not enough to compensate for, for whatever age effects. I'm not Tiger Woods, though. And my driving distance has definitely gone down. I've had the same clubs for 20 years. Come on, man. So get... I'm, I'm, I'm doing a nice controlled experiment I, I here. I think the point that's interesting, and you, know, you showed us the stat here, was essentially how much. See, I'm much always more of an effect size guy than up and down. So how much has the average driving distance gone up? It's gone up 8%, but what matters to me is it's about 20 yards. Now, for most people that play golf, that's about one club. So what that normally means is, so this is the interesting part to me. The way that one way to think about it is, Tiger Woods used to have, on average, let's call it a one to two club advantage. He's hitting seven iron to the green. Other guys are hitting five iron to the green. Now that advantage has shrunk. So to me, you could explain, it's one hypothetical, is you could explain the scoring difference between Tiger. If you just take the number of times he plays irons, which on most, you know, let's call it every hole, you're probably going to hit one iron. So 18 times four rounds, he hits 70 irons in a tournament. He hits them possibly in the past 
from what he's hitting a one higher club than somebody else. You could look at the differential advantage yeah. and see what fraction of his scoring advantage that that actually accumulates. And, and I mean, to. it's interesting because we talked about uh, his kind of iron accuracy is one of the main strengths of his game throughout his career. How much of that was like? Like it would be interesting to look at his kind of accuracy, like closest to the distance to the pin, controlling for the same what club he's hitting Good. compared to others, right? right? You, you know, as opposed That's to right. him just part of the reason he's more accurate is just he's hitting a That's you know right. a, a, a higher club. Important, important observation. Many thanks to Will Haskett, by the way, former guest of ours, Will Haskett, who threw us some updated data. Eric, you said you want to talk college football. What do you got? Okay, so before n- naming the team, although Kate will know who I mean immediately. Let's imagine you had a team ranked fourth or something in the nation or third in the nation, okay? And they played a game against another top 10 team, okay? And let's imagine they were favored by 10 or 11 points, okay? And let's imagine they won the game but by three points. Would that be evidence to you that that team should jump to number one in the rankings? So I'm obviously talking about LSU. Now, LSU played Auburn. It was a very tough game, very competitive game. LSU won the game. The expectation by the betting lines, probably even Massey Peabody, it had to be somewhere in a 9 or 10 point spread. It had to be somewhere in there. The betting, I mean, Massey Peabody is fairly well calibrated with the gambling lines. I think LSU won the game by three, if I have it correct. And all of a sudden, LSU jumps to number one in the polls. I just didn't get it. I, I just, I understand the polls are not mathematical rankings. But what is it that LSU did that made people think that they were much better than they were just a previous week when, in some sense, they didn't exceed the expectations? It's just a question. They, I, I mean, I, I think the one part of it is they won a big game uh, against quality to competition win by more than that. in a season where we just haven't had a lot of those, right? Yeah. So I think this is getting, think, getting to the answer. The answer is the polls are not designed to just identify the best team. They are yeah. also rewarding the most accomplished team. That's just the nature. It's a blend of these things. But you, you can talk to people who say, no, I, I understand the debate, but I that's not how I vote. Part of what I'm doing is I'm voting who's done the most on the field. Yeah. And we haven't had teams win many big games so far this year, so they're rewarding accomplishment on the field. Did Massey Peabody have, forget the ranking position, you guys have an offensive defense's total strength. Did LSU's total strength go up based on the victory over Auburn? Do you know? Did they improve that much? LSU's total. LSU. So right LSU. now we have them plus 31.8. Last year we had them 30.8. So we bumped Last them up week. a point. We bumped them up so a point So you did bump week. them up a yeah. point. Yeah. And is that considered, just to help me, I'm, again, I'm an effect size guy, is that a big jump for a week? Yeah, one point. I mean, I mean, we see those kinds of moves. Um, in fact, we dropped. Um, uh, we dropped New England, and it's a bigger move in professional football. We dropped New England a point. I noticed uh, last night this because of their performance against Cleveland. So it's not unheard of. But no, we, they usually teams don't usually move around quite that much. What else on college football these days? Um, I ran. I ran. You know, each year, each we we have power rankings. We have forecasts for the for the for the playoffs. But every now and then, I run actual bracket predictions like in our simulation what are the most common sets of teams like who's actually making the playoffs the 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 actual combination of four and the interesting thing about this is early in the season even the most likely bracket is exceedingly unlikely there are so many things that could happen Mm -hmm. the most likely bracket real quickly is you know like two three four percent likely even in the season when you think oh these are obviously the teams like no the most likely four team set is exceeding. I don't mean that. I don't mean one through four seeds. I mean just four teams. Right now, the most likely bracket has snuck up. So the most likely bracket in our simulation 
has a 26% chance of coming to be. And that bracket has both Alabama and LSU in from the from the SEC. And then, of course, the kind of obvious ones are Clemson and Ohio State. Yeah, I was just going to remind you that you remember the first day of the season, you asked us to each guess not which was which four was the top, but how much probability. Yeah. Or even you even asked us, if I even added up the top 10 of yeah, them, how much right. probability there was. And I think, I guess, I don't know, 30, 40 percent. I was so miscalibrated right. that, like, well, of course it's going to go. Like, it's obvious it's got to be one of these t- even if I took 10 four-tuples, it's got to be one of those, That's right? right. That's no, right. it doesn't. It doesn't because there are so many different teams and there are so many games to play that you can't, you don't intuitively keep track of the number of options. And whenever there are that many options, the most likely it's not going to so be So just one likely. question about this. You know I'm always for the non-Power 5 school getting in. Yeah. How far down the list do I have to go to your simulation to get to where, you know, a Boise State or one of the undefeated teams that's you know not in the top 10 right now actually makes it or does it ever get there at all i don't even know you're going to get there i mean i i I don't want to dig through this right now because i would have to go so far i don't think you're going to get there that we're not expecting a non-power five team to make it through and that would be even if it turns out there's no undefeated team in the big 10 even if there's no undefeated team i guess in the big 12 and so even if that were to happen, then yeah. still you just don't see well, who, it happen. Who's your candidate? This is one of the – we've talked about this, not just us, but others talk about it. If you want a group of five team to make the playoffs, you kind of have to build it over a couple of years. You can't go from scratch to making the playoffs in a year. And we're not saying it's fair. We're just saying people have to sort of expect it to believe it. And the and the highest-rated group of five team right now is SMU. And nobody believes SMU is a playoff team, right. and they're not going to believe it until they do this for a couple of years, and then they'll start taking them seriously. I just I just forget this year. I, I always get them confused. I know UCF lost a number of times this yeah. year. So they, they were a team, by the way, that could have made an argument. They had built that reputation. They had built that reputation. And Boise before them. Is Boise not undefeated? I they I don't think so. I think they might have lost to BYU or something out there. Okay, I thought at one point recently they were undefeated, but you know that's I'm th- also thinking ten years ago when Boise State yes. was this team. See, this, that, you you're know, making my point for yeah. me. You're 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 claiming teams that built reputation years ago and they're not viable right now. And SMU is just not going to be in the conversation. So anything else? Or you want? Let's jump over to the NFL. You guys, I, it's this strange season where even though the college football has a nice set of five or six teams, yeah. week to week there aren't that many games that are interesting so far. Like Utah Washington this week is a second second tier game. I mean, it's top tier game, but that's like the second best. The best game is Georgia Florida probably. Matty D's Bulldogs got to go play for the SEC East. Going to be interesting. You know, people. Georgia lost. They lost unexpectedly to South Carolina, and they got it dropped off of the highest-profile tier. And here's a chance to jump back in because they've got a very serious Florida team they could beat. But other than that, I mean, there's not that much going on yet again. And some of the SEC teams are rolling into their late-season FBS schedule. They do this thing where they play a lame out-of-conference game late October, early November. So it's we will get some good college football games, but this isn't the weekend. In the NFL, on the other hand, what before we drop into the matchups, big picture – I well, I mean, we, you, you you talked at the start of the very start of our show today about really you can't kind of tell too much in the NFL after three games. You kind of have to be you need like to get there around halfway through the season. Well, we're halfway through the season, right? Right. 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 So, um, 
I still think that there's been some real surprises, you know, Clearly. even at halfway through Clearly. the season. Yeah, let's talk um, about let's let's take the midseason temperature here. What, yeah. The Niners have to be the big story. Yes. No, I think they are the biggest surprise of all. Um I think the Niners are uh, I mean it's their their defense, I mean it, I guess it probably shouldn't have taken us by surprise given they've basically got first rounders across their Every entire position. line. Uh but it did still take me by surprise. Um and you know, of course, there was a lot of uncertainty with uh, Garoppolo coming in as well. But it turns out, you know, they've managed that uncertainty a little bit. I feel like we're still uncertain about Garoppolo, but he has not been really needed to win a game. Look, the beauty of the NFL, Shane and I were, were around, we shouldn't have talked about it off air, but look, we're <laughs> going to find out exactly how good the Patriots and the uh, 49ers are. Here are the next five games for the Patriots. Would you guys agree that the Ravens were a decent team? Hey, that's a big wait, game I Sunday know, wait, night. Wait. Yeah. They're at Ravens. Would you agree the Eagles are at least a decent team? Yeah. Better than the Ravens. Okay, they're at Eagles. Would you agree that the Cowboys are a decent team? Yeah, absolutely. They're playing the Cowboys. Would you agree that the Texans are a decent team? Yeah. yeah. They're at Texans. Would you agree that the Chiefs are a decent team? Yeah. Wow. Those what are the next schedule. five well, games I know. for the Patriots. Well, I mean, it was also, I mean, they, you, you know, it's the first half of their season no, no, we may not have my comment so was much, we're yeah. going to find out because yeah. they're playing five of the top quick, ten let's teams. Do a, let's do a yeah. quick over-under. Let's do a, we don't do over under in yeah, the football yeah. season because we do matchups. But if you had to pick, if you had to set the number for over under there, what are you going to go with? One point five. Like for, oh, so, I, I would say losses. Uh, love losses. Yeah, yeah. Number of losses out of that five games. I agree. That's the right number. Now pick a side. I would go. I'm going to take the over. I think they lose two. Yeah, I do maybe. too. I go. So maybe yeah. maybe two is well, we can't get there. But yeah, I, I'm going to go. If it's one point five, I'm going to go under. I think they go four and one really? in that set of games. Yeah, yeah. I don't think the Ravens are. I don't think the Ravens will be competitive. I think the Cowboys wow. are. They're too, home. I, we'll get, they're home. They are home. I still think I, I only see one loss in that group. I hope it's I, to I the think, Eagles. But well, I, I think I, I mean, if, if I was to predict my two losses, it would be Eagles and Chiefs in that. In that is in that Mahomes going to be back by the time yes. he gets there? Okay. Yeah. And but where where is that game? It's at uh, that, in that New one is in New England. Okay. And Dallas is in New England as well. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. The okay. other the other interesting team, of course. Uh, so forget they're playing the Cardinals twice. Although they could lose to the Cardinals. Four of the next six games, here are the San Francisco games. They're playing the Seahawks. Do we agree they're decent? Yeah. How about the Packers? Are they decent? Yeah. How about the Ravens? Yeah. How about the Saints? So the 49ers have to play the Seahawks, Pack. forget the AFC for a second. They have to play the Seahawks, the Packers, and the Saints in their next three games, All six right. games. Mm-hmm. Seahawks, Packers, and Saints. Those are the <laughs> other potentially elite teams. Yeah. We're going to find out how good San Francisco is. It's yeah. great. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of good going on there. Of course, there's some second-tier stories that, that deserve a lot of attention as well. And I would say... These teams that have been able to get by without their quarterbacks are one of the most interesting. So yeah, so you're the backup quarterback has so been fascinating. Breeze is back now, but they had such a good run without him. And yeah. then Indy is just the most amazing thing. Yeah. What it's they've an amazing done, story. what they've done despite losing a you know borderline Hall of Fame quarterback in August. It's just yeah, amazing. no, and I mean I think you know this plus kind of uh, some of Philadelphia's struggles over the last couple seasons. Kind of, we're, I think we're starting to build up a body of evidence that Frank Reich is a really good football coach. coach. Mm-hmm. The other yeah. comment I'll make, by the way, that just caught my eye was I started to wonder because I look at the Patriots numbers and we see they've only given up 61 points after eight games and they scored 250. So I decided just to go back and look. The 85 Bears, which most people give right. credit to being one of the great defensive teams of all times. Two things shocked me. First of all, the Bears, after eight games, had given up 114 points. Wow. Okay. Almost twice. Almost twice. But the second thing that surprised me is 
they were a better scoring team than I thought. They'd scored 239. So they've actually almost scored as many as the <laughs> Patriots, but what they haven't done, they almost gave yeah. up twice as many points. But you know, you, we just talked about how strong a schedule the Pats face, which almost by definition means they've had a weak they've schedule. They've had a very, very, very weak schedule. You know, yeah. That's something, we, we can run that analysis. The NFL does a pretty good job of evening things up over the course of the season, but at mid-season, schedule disparity yeah. can be and, a and real thing. And their strength of schedule, I think, thing. is either the, uh, the easiest or the second easiest, I think, in the entire NFL okay, right so now. If you're going to go around, if you're going to throw around yeah. 85 bear comparisons, we need to somehow norm for competition because yeah. I don't have any idea what they played. We just know they played a lousy AFC team when they got to the Super Bowl. <laughs> we did. That we know. Speaking, we, we do know that. Pats. Speaking of that. Speaking of the Pats, right? Yeah. Speaking of the team that's lost the most Super Bowls of any franchise. Yeah, there's, well, that's surprising. Bills? They, how many? The Bills yeah, lost the, uh, four the in Patriots a row. have lost five. Five. The Patriots yeah. have also been in the most yeah, now. Clearly. They've been in 11, so. And you're yeah. just bragging now. No, I, I, it was an well, excuse. No, no, it's, it's I mean, I brought up the no, loss, losses to bring Brady's, up the wins. That's, that's, how you, that's how you introduce Brady's things six, subtly. Brady 6-3, and three, the 85 team lost, and... Uh, uh, the one in the 90s, yeah, the Packers. The, yeah. Uh, the Tony Easton it's just, I just can't. I, I can't keep up with the number of Super Bowls Brady's played in. Nine? You've Nine. It's crazy, me. right? That's just absolutely absurd. Yeah, it is. But again, I look, I want to give him credit for it. I just even said he's the greatest quarterback of all time. But... Again, he's one or two plays away. He could be four and five in the Super yep. Bowl. He could be eight and one. You know what? I'm just saying. There's a that's huge, sports. That's sports. That's sports. Yeah. Six and three to me. Again, I've said it again. Is about right. Yeah. Six and three is about right, and that's yeah. not bad. Yeah. How about yeah. Manning's two and zero? Is that about right? <laughs> that's less right. That's that's less right. Le- that, that suggests less that's right in the world. That one. All right. Let's take the corner pole and come on down the home stretch. Moneyball matchups. All right, Eric Bradley, what do you got this week? Well, let's just go to each of you quickly. Uh, Shane, you know, we talk about which games caught our eye. So, Shane? Yeah, which, Patriots, uh, Patri- Patriots, Ravens, I think. We brought it up before. I think that's going to be a huge one as far as kind of, I mean, obviously huge consequences for the bye. And as well, huge, uh, you, you know, just kind of like for the Ravens, you know, they've still got like a division to win. So I think I and I, I'm just kind of excited to again see. I mean, obviously, the, the Ravens have a very unconventional offense. And I'm excited to see what happens when that goes up against a very, very good defense. Are you surprised the Patriots are only favored by three and a half? In Baltimore, I mean, they're no, I'm not surprised by that. I think that's about right. And who actually. do you like? Who do you like? I like the Patriots. I think you know Bill Bel. You know I think Bill Belichick is really good in f- against first. I mean his record against first and second year quarterbacks is something ridiculous. So so I, I'll, I'll, I'm 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 liking the Patriots on that one. The, but they could easily lose. I mean, obviously, well, they, there's a small advantage to the Ravens in that not only are they hosting, but they had a bye last week, mm-hmm. and that's yep. that's, that's worth no. Something. And again, the Patriots. I think also the Eagles. They hit the Eagles coming off a bye as well. Okay, so, so the Patriots uh, really do Cade, which game now. caught your eye? Let me. I'm still scanning this, Eric. You got one while I scan? I do, I do. So here's a team I was saying that's underappreciated. They've got the third most points in the NFL right now and the third best defense, and that's the Minnesota Vikings. Mm-hmm. The Vikings are playing the Chiefs this week. Now, there's no line on it right now because they're still trying to figure out if Mahomes is playing or not. That Viking team is a scary, angry team. I'm telling you something. I have... 
I'm not sure the Vikings aren't going to win that game. I like the Vikings this year. I think Kirk Cousins, ever since he's been criticized, has been actually his stats are that he's the best quarterback in the NFL over that five week yep. period. Yeah, I like that game. I think it's a fascinating game, and I'm not as convinced right now the Chiefs are playing that great at the moment. So I'm, I'm well, certainly, certainly like Kirk Cousins playing as well as he is right now, going up against that secondary is a, is a. That's it, a bad combination for the Kansas City. Chiefs. There's going to be a lot of points potentially scored yeah. in that yep. game, and we'll see what happens. But we, I, that's just a fascinating game to me. A lot of books aren't putting the line out yet because I guess Mahomes is. Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah, yeah. Mahomes okay. is uncertain, okay. so there's no line out yet. So I think you guys picked the two obvious games, and so I'm going to go to another one. I think I'm not excited about it, but I think it's telling. These are two good teams: Houston, Jacksonville. Houston's mm-hmm. in Jacksonville. Yeah, the line that's a is a big game for that division. It's a big game. It's point and a half favorite to Jacksonville. We 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 think that. I mean, point and a half favorite to uh, Houston. We think that Houston's better than that, actually. And Deshaun Watson is really – people are excited about Deshaun Watson. That guy is the most fun dude to watch. I mean, Mahomes, non-Mahomes division, that guy is the most fun dude to watch. We have him number nine in the league, and there's a lot of people stacked up there, so that's not very far off the very top tier. And we we like Jacksonville, but we don't like him as much as others. But they've been been showing well on the field. So I think Mm -hmm. this is an interesting and important game for the division. And who would have thought with Gardner Minshew – as the starting quarterback, not That's Nick wonderful. Foles. I love it. That Gardner Minshew, they'd be talking about the division, yeah. and the guy's played well. He's, yeah. not, he's not game manager. This, the guy's playing well. The ability for first-year quarterbacks to come in and contribute is just amazing. It's one of the biggest changes in the NFL over our, our lifetime, I would say. All right, fellas, that has been another two hours of Wharton Moneyball, two hours of sports analytics here on Wednesday morning, 8 a.m., to 10 a.m. Matty Dats, many thanks to you for running the show here. Matty Johnson just walked in the door. Original original producer and Wharton alumni just walked in the door saying good morning. Many thanks to Dion Simpkins. Always good to see you in here, buddy. Zach, Dra- Zach Drapkin, our research associate for Audie Weiner, for Shane Jensen, for Eric Bradle. This is Cade Massey. Thank you for listening. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.